All right, we did a good thing. We got the sledgehammer on. For... No, I was going to make a sledgehammer golf reference to our next guest, but I remember he's not that good at golf. So uh, he definitely... He definitely looks good on the course, which is really all that matters. You know me. I'm a big look good, feel good guy. And uh, Matt Perino, New York Upstate, joining me on the Western Hotline. He subscribes to the look good, feel good, uh, you know, a golf dressing campaign. Uh, However, it did not translate on the course for the Bills Media Tournament. I was happy with my performance. That was the first time I got out this year. Um, You know, the thing for you is it's like if you don't go out there and win it, it's like – a huge disappointment. Yeah, like yeah. Headline yeah. news. Yeah. It's kind of why for the last three years you haven't showed up on my driveway to play basketball. <laughs> it's okay. We can play golf. I get it. Listen, uh, Marcel has agreed with me in this that, like, especially I can't risk golf season by rolling an ankle in your driveway. <laughs> You got to understand I, when you I get old, you're you're an old man that. yourself. I know you're turning forty this year. You're an old man yourself, dude. You roll one ankle. We're talking. We, this isn't a two or three three week turnaround. A rolled ankle at 30, 40 years old. We're talking six, seven, ten, fifteen week injury. Icing every day. Rate you know lifting, raising up your foot. Like that's no joke now. Like it, it, ten years ago, I rolled my ankle. I'm I'm back up in two weeks now. I might be done for the whole summer. I totally 100% respect that. And, you know, John Scott tries to get me to go out and uh, play in his, he's got to pick up a basketball league, a softball league. And it's like, man, if I get hurt, like we're talking about just like a miserable month. Correct. Ahead. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm 100% with and, you. And, you know, listen, don't let John, John Scott pressure you into playing basketball. He, John Scott's a classic intramural basketball hero like he's out there taking charges you know like getting up yelling in the in the volunteer referee's face like that is john scott to a t yeah without a doubt and rightfully so i mean if i could kind of you know mess it up down in the paint like he can in some of these pickup games i i'd probably look forward to that there's not a lot yeah, of matchups in pickup that he's not looking forward to so yeah i get it yeah, he's a big guy. I, by the way, like had it had it been two v two in your driveway, it was hundred percent you and me on each other because I was definitely making Marcel go to cover John Scott. I I, had, I wanted nothing to do with John Scott and, and the paint. Yeah, I don't show up if John Scott's not on my team. So <laughs> we're, we're 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 aligned at this point. <laughs> Love that. All right, buddy. Well, listen, it was a long, I don't know, couple of weeks of Bill's OTAs down there at One Bill's Drive, and um, you got yourself a good view of what this team is going to look like heading into training camp and obviously this upcoming season. What was the one thing, maybe it was a player, maybe it was what you saw in the brief, um, you know, install periods on offense or defense. Is there something that stood out to you that you kind of looked to yourself and said, you know... That's gonna. That's a new wrinkle. That's a new phase. This feels different. What What was that for you over the first couple of weeks of OTAs, if any? You know, it's 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 hard because we don't want to overreact to stuff that's happening without any pads. But I I think that the wealth of talent, like that, might be flying under the radar that the Bills have at their disposal at wide receiver. I don't think really we as a group are talking enough about how hard that decision is going to be. And Sean McDermott talked about it last week. It's like you build this thing up and add all this talent and Brandon Bean's done what he's done to get to this point, to make these hard, hard decisions. Well, 
there's a ton, especially in the slot. Like trying to figure out how this is going to shape up in the slot is really hard. And, you know, you have Isaiah McKenzie, Jamison Crowder, who already in four weeks looks like he is potentially an upgrade over what we saw from Cole Beasley last year. And I'm not talking about an upgrade over the three-year sample size of Cole Beasley, but I just mean maybe a throwback to what Cole Beasley was at his best in this offense. So you have that at your disposal. Then you throw in the rookie, Khalil Shakir, and then the wild card, all of a sudden, when, when they signed Tavon Austin, I wasn't projecting him to really be even in the mix for mm. a roster spot. But now, they love him in that room, Nate. I mean, the way Josh Allen was talking about him the other day, he's a guy, to me, that I think is going to be one of those glue guys, those, those valuable veterans that you know Sean McDermott covets. Now, he's got to earn the job over the course of the next six to uh, ten weeks. He's got to stay healthy. Uh, once camp starts, obviously. But, man, they have a ton of wide receiver talent. And, oh, by the way, Marquez Stevenson had a really nice bounce back after a slow start in OTAs. I thought the last two and a half weeks he was as good as anybody out there. He was making really good catches. Isaiah Hodgins had himself a day. And if he could stay healthy, they're going to have so many tough decisions on this in this wide receiver room. Yeah, Hodges is an interesting name to me. And, you know, a lot of you know following along on your post-practice you know, observation pieces and up on your podcast, and not just you, but other media members as well, talking a lot about the Case Keenum and Isaiah Hodgins uh, connection during OTAs. And and listen, I know there's no pads on, and that's really where, for me, Matt, I've been waiting for Isaiah Hodgins to pop. He seems to pop when the pads are off. He seems to go get a little invisible at times when the pads go on. That, that to me, is going to be the biggest separator, I think, of the wide receiver room, Matt, is when the physicality starts – when the guys start getting pressed at the line of scrimmage, can they make plays? Can they get open for their quarterback? That's when it's going to matter. But Hodgins, uh, Stevenson, um, you know, and, and even to a certain extent, you mentioned uh, Tavon Austin. Like when the pads come on, there are two wide receiver positions, maybe, Matt. I mean, because I want to think that Kumaro and Isaiah McKenzie are locks. And I think Crowder and, you know, Diggs and, and Davis are locks. That really means there's one position maybe up for grabs and five guys going for it and that's if you keep six I would be surprised if this team keeps seven but maybe that seventh spot is Tavon Austin pushing his way onto the roster right and you know I think in the end we don't have to go overboard in in projecting this because I think the Bills are going to be able to put one or two of these guys at least on their practice squad if they want with the rule with the way the rules are structured and everything like that it comes down to who don't you want to risk losing the most you know, at the end. They put Isaiah Hodgins on the, on the practice squad all year last year. So they could probably do that again. I don't think anybody's coming for him necessarily. But I was talking about this on a recent episode of the podcast and trying to, like, envision what now this wide receiver room looks like. And, you know, the last couple of years you had John Brown in 20, then Emmanuel Sanders in that kind of wide receiver two role to start the year. Gabriel Davis is that now definitively, right? So what does that open up in the wide receiver group? That utility man, that do whatever you need him to do whenever you need him to do it role that has been Gabriel Davis over the last two seasons when he had 13 touchdown um, catches, and I think he was only playing like 30 to 40% of the snaps. That to me is now Isaiah McKenzie. So I'm not going to pencil him or, or write him in pen in that slot competition because I can think you could do a little bit of everything with, with Isaiah McKenzie. I think that maybe – they see him internally, and this isn't anything that I have, like a source or anything like that, but potentially as a guy that can maybe do more than just 
that slot receiver role that he's kind of filled in back up to, to Cole Beasley the last couple of years. And then that opens up that slot spot for maybe uh, Jameson Crowder, Khalil Shakir can kind of go in the Marquez Stevenson role and just develop this season. And then maybe Marquez Stevenson can, can earn that spot as being your deep threat, your, your guy that really puts pressure on the defense down the field when he's on, on the field. So, so many interesting things. And, but to your point, when we started this, we're not going to really know, have a good idea or grasp of this until we see it out at training camp. And the cool thing is 12 open practices. I mean, fans are going to get a really good long look at all of this. Matt Perino here of New York Upstate Shout Podcast, joining us on the West Her Hotline. We're talking Bill's minicamp. We were just talking some receivers. You know, Matt, I'm also interested in your thoughts on the defensive backfield side of things because it seems like, you know, for the most part, we're not going to see a lot of – Again, the the evaluation portion, especially at the defensive back position, really comes when the pads come on, right? In the same in the same way I mentioned, you know, the wide receiver room, Isaiah Hodgins, wanting to see those guys step up from a physicality perspective. The same's gonna be said about Kyer Elam, the Bills rookie first round pick a corner, and Dane Jackson. I mean, that is a legitimate, you know, one in one competition that's gonna be happening throughout training camp and in the preseason. What have you saw um, you know, throughout training camp or I'm sorry, throughout OTAs from this defensive backfield, is there something that stood out to you? I know Nick McLeod, we saw and heard from him getting moved back to the safety position. Any other guys stand out to you during this OTA process, maybe when we got in seven-on-sevens making plays, being sticky in coverage? Who really stood out to you in that defensive backfield? Yeah, uh, I thought Kyer Elam, like, he really trended upwards throughout the entire course of the offseason, which is not a surprise for a young guy that is getting more and more comfortable with the playbook as each day passes. Um, the thing that jumps out at you, even without pads, is the recover speed of Kyrie Elam. Like, that speed, that 4-4-40 time that everybody's been talking about over the last couple of months, you see it on the field, no doubt about it. There was a play he made in the last practice of minicamp where Josh Allen saw uh, Jamison Crowder kind of coming open, and they had a miscommunication. And I think he thought he was going to, you know, go down the field, and he just stopped where he was on the left side. And Allen threw it up. It probably would have been a good ball if Crowder finished off a 50-50 ball if Crowder finished the route, but he didn't. But Kyrie Elam didn't stop. He noticed. He was watching the quarterback. He read his eyes. He then turned on the afterburners, Nate, and then we were standing right on that sideline. So he was coming basically right at us, and you're just like your eyes kind of open up a little bit more, and you're just like, wow, that's that speed everybody's talking about. So I, when I'm envisioning this, this camp battle, right, because Dane mm-hmm. Jackson started a lot of games last year, maybe – He's in the mix for that other starting spot if Trey's not ready to go week one. Uh, I see that. But I don't see a situation where Kyrie Elam's now on the field to start unless it's really bad. I go back to what Brandon Bean has said in the past. Like I'm not going to draft a player in the first round unless I'm 100% sold that he can start day one because I don't want him to deal with that, like, you know, starting right. to hear murmurs of, of being a bust. So I think Elam's going to be on the field. And uh, so far, so good. I mean, he's looked really explosive really fast. Well, let's talk about another guy that came in this offseason, and that's O.J. Howard, Bill's tight end. Um, Sort of some weird, you know, like Florio came out with like a weird article yesterday or two days ago talking about how, you know, he's not going to push Dawson Knox maybe. Like, yeah, no kidding. He was not brought in here to push Dawson Knox to be the starting tight end on this team. So that's just a weird thing and felt very, 
out of touch on what's actually happening here at Buffalo. But, but I digress. And and listen, you know, part of, you know, I think it was some of your feedback I was listening to about how he was definitely looking a little slower out of breaks. And I'll tell you, you know, from the injury perspective, the, the Achilles tendon that he tore two years ago, that's a tough injury to come back from. You're six foot seven or whatever he is. He's like six, seven, six. He's a big guy. Um, how much of the speed that you're watching him play with do you think has to do with him slowing down a little bit from that injury? Or how much, if you could put a percentage on it, part of it too, I think, Matt, is getting comfortable in a new scheme, and a new system, and asking to be running different routes than maybe he was traditionally running in Tampa Bay. I'm, I, I still have hope that he can be a good, solid, in-line, number two tight end. And he didn't have to, he didn't have to catch 40 balls to do that. Yeah, I think this conversation is a really good one. And I, I had some comments about O.J. Howard. I, I always am kind of on the fence about putting out too much negative stuff from, from a padless practice because I think sometimes people run with it and get a little bit of – I put out that I thought throughout the course of this offseason so far, he seemed a little bit slow and a little bit robotic in his routes. Now, at the same time, I explain that away as – these guys come in, Nate, and the first thing out of their mouth after they get a couple days in the playbook is like, man, this is one of the hardest things I've ever looked at in the NFL. Tavon Austin just said it when, he's got, when he got here a few weeks ago, and he's played for four or five NFL teams. So that is part of it. I think just getting down what you're supposed to do, I think it's partly why offensive players that are rookies tend to get off the slow starts for the Bills because of how complicated this has been. And I think there's probably a physical element. I also think there's – a voluntary element that if you're O.J. Howard, he didn't tell me this or anything. I haven't had a chance to talk to him about it. But I would probably be going at 60 or 70% in, these, in this kind of setting so that I don't suffer an injury being a person that's been pretty injury-prone over the course of my career. So there could be an element that we don't even know about where they're just they're dialing him back to keep him healthy, you know, making sure that he gets into training camp. This stuff right now is just more about getting down the concepts a lot of it's walked through, a lot of it's half speed. So it's definitely not something to overreact to. But I just thought, hey, I, I should probably report this because he has looked a little bit slower than I anticipated, knowing the athletic uh, profile that he comes with. We were talking about the competition just a few minutes ago at the wide receiver position, how deep that group is, talking about Taven Austin, talking about, like, you know, is this team going to keep seven receivers? One of the things, you know, I read in Joe B's piece this week um, that, you know, his observations from Wednesday's practice. And, you know, I know you mentioned Isaiah McKenzie a little bit, but I want to, I maybe want to like drill down a little bit more on, on sort of trying to predict what he looks like in this offense this year. And, you know, one of the prevailing thoughts about McKenzie is that he is kind of a one trick pony and that he's not going to run every tree in the, in the route tree and maybe is more of a gadget player. But what are you expecting from McKenzie this year? Like, do, do you, because frankly, when he got to the team in 2018, he really was one of the pieces that I think started clicking right away with Josh Allen. Um, and then, you know, he's kind of, I would say really from his, the, his first season with the Bills to now, we've almost seen a decline in his presence on the field. And yet they re-sign him again for the second straight offseason, this time to a two-year deal. I get the sense, and, and this is to talk about, we were talking about, you know, Kumaro and, and Tavon Austin, all these guys at the wide receiver position. That doesn't even count their, their fifth-round pick, Khalil Shakir, who's also in this co conversation as well. But for McKenzie, at least this year, where do you see his role evolving to? Because I think the word evolving is important when you're talking about McKenzie's role because it's not going to be the same as last year. Right, and you talk about two guys at the top now and Diggs and Gabriel Davis, who's been pretty available, right? But they've also had their dings over the last couple of seasons. They've missed time. If one of those guys goes out, if you look at this wide receiving core right now, 
who has the kind of skill set to step up into a supplementary role to the other one that's still healthy? I mean, to me, that's the only guy that really stands out is McKenzie. And we're, we, we oftentimes box ourselves in to what we've seen so far, right? But the way that you look at Isaiah McKenzie, even the last year, and the way that he moves around the formation, there's a lot of times I've seen in um, you know, preseason games and actual games, practices over the years, where he's lined up outside and ran really good routes and maybe even beat his guy because of his speed, his quickness, and his looseness. And there's just not that role for him in the offense. And so, you know, I think now with, with, with not a clear-cut veteran number three, you know, I, I think John Brown kind of settled into that a couple of years ago. I know he was wide receiver too, but there was, you know, Gabriel Davis was coming on, and he almost became like the third guy when he got back, right? Then it was last year, I thought Emmanuel Sanders started as that, you know, number one, number two, and then before long, Gabriel Davis took that back as well. Now Davis is that guy, like I said, and I just think McKenzie now, he fits into a, a more dynamic role. And if the matchup calls for it, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they lean on him in the slot, a la a, a, a Patriots game type situation from last season. And then when it's a game where you're going up against his own defense and you want to utilize Jamison Crowder's crafty route running ability mm-hmm. and ability to find you know, spots in the zone, maybe you lean on him a little bit more and you work McKenzie in elsewhere. Um, it's going to be interesting, and that's the, 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 the most interesting thing about all of this that I haven't even talked about yet is the dynamic of Joe Brady now in that offensive room. Like, right. they, it's a real collaborative effort that I don't think most, like, casual fans really understand. Like, you think, all right, Joe Brady, he's the quarterback's coach, and it ends there. It really doesn't. He, you know, everybody that's talked about Ken Dorsey, who was the quarterback's coach last year, Stephon Diggs, Devin Singletary, Dawson Knox, they all talked about how much they enjoyed working with Dorsey and his impact on the entire offense as the quarterback's coach. Brady's been an offensive coordinator in the NFL. He was probably the most hyped position coach in the history of college yeah. football after that cha- national championship a couple of years ago. And what was he there, Nate? A wide receivers coach. He worked with Justin Jefferson. He worked with Jamar Chase. That kind of infusion of brain power mm-hmm. into an offensive room, you really can't understate how much that could potentially mean. I'm glad you brought up Ken Dorsey in this because, you know, I'm not going to say he's been flying under the radar, but because I think a lot of people are talking about the Ken Dorsey effect and how an offense like Josh Allen's, like, you know, just it's it's just don't break it, right? Like, don't try to be do too much. Don't try to be something you're not because this is an offense that needs very little change. But I do think, Matt, that it does need some level of change. It needs Ken's... I don't know, like his own magic to it. Like to be Brian Dable, I think would do a disservice to being Ken Dorsey. And I think Ken brings a different element, playing the position at a high level in college in Miami and in a program that had more NFL players than any program I can remember ever. Um, And then playing in the NFL, that means something more than maybe Brian Dable's experience, which was mostly, you know, coaching at the tight end position. And he got to see the game from a lot of different perspectives as a coach, but Ken's got to see it from the field and knowing that he has that rapport with Josh Allen already I think is major key but like where do you put maybe like the onus the pressure that that currently exists on the shoulders of Ken Dorsey yeah how real is that pressure I think there's some level of pressure on Josh Allen to for, when it comes to Dorsey's success he he kind of tabbed him from the start of this process when David was going like yeah I want Dorsey like he, he said it basically outright and when he was hired he said yeah that, that was what I wanted all along we already have this rapport so you know Josh Allen's going into year five, and he is an MVP candidate for the, the, the leading Super Bowl contender, 
And a lot of the pressure in my eyes is going to be on Allen to run this offense and take that next step to start to evolve into, you know, that coach onto the field a little bit, which I think he's already kind of been. But there was a calming nature to Brian Dable's approach, right? He was very – he had a way about him that welcomed everybody into the room, created this family atmosphere, and then kind of sent everybody out and, you know, let them do their job, but also was this calming presence in games. How's Ken Dorsey going to do with that part of it? Is that part of his demeanor? I've heard that he's super fiery. Like, people don't even understand how competitive he is. And when he's down there, like Gabriel Davis even joked, like, yeah, I kind of want him up uh, up in the booth because he's that intense and, and stuff down on the field. So does he dial that back a little bit now that he's kind of like the CEO of the offense? One thing that somebody said, though, um, I'm trying to think back if it was Diggs or Davis. I think it was Davis. And he said, the thing that stands out about Dorsey is that he's in attack mode all the time. And if, you're, if you take this offense with this quarterback and the, the, the amount of talent around him, and now you supercharge the attack mentality of that offense – I'm interested to see what that looks like because they have the horses, they have the creativity, they have the risk, and that could maybe be a little bit more aggressiveness in the run game. Like how do they utilize their wide receivers in the run game? What is the, the, the dynamic mix between James Cook, Zach Moss, and Devin Singletary? That'll be interesting to watch. What's Cromer, Aaron Cromer's effect on all of that? So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. they got a couple months to really perfect it. Then they, you know, they, get, the, they get the preseason, Nate, and they got to figure out where's Dorsey going to be calling plays from and can he in three preseason games get the necessary reps mm. on top of what he's already been doing behind the scenes to be able to go out day one and be ready for every situation that comes up with, you know, in a game? That's going to be part of it, too. That's, that's the part where I wonder if it's the biggest learning curve for this offense is, like, you know, Dorsey being able to react in-game. Maybe he will. He's been a quarterback before. He's called plays on the field before. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm really interested in that whole dynamic. And, you know, listen, I think the – the interesting part, too, about the the Dorsey-Allen relationship is, and, and this is going to go forth as I think Josh Allen is going to get a lot of guys head coaching jobs in this league at the offensive coordinator position because of how good he is. But, you know, it is unique because the Bills are one of the, the very rare top teams with a defensive-minded head coach. Like, the quarterback for Green Bay, whoever it is, is going to have Matt LaFleur, an offensive guru, a mastermind, Shanahan, mastermind, right? Like, a lot of these top teams with the top offenses, McVay in L.A., um, all have offensive-minded head coaches that are all going to have that continuity in the offensive side of the ball, and that's probably never going to be that continuity in terms of coach and quarterback on the offensive side. That may there may never be a constant here in Buffalo, and that's something to think about for the future. That that I don't think we've all really kind of taken the time to appreciate. Yeah, that's a that's a whole podcast uh, yeah. episode, right? Like the what the the next iteration of coaching staff could look like if it ever really falls apart here for Sean McDermott. Like people ask me all the time on the heels of 13 seconds, like, you know, if he has a bad season this year, like what's going to happen? Look at the last 17 years. Look at the relationship with these owners. It could be probably three or four bad seasons, and I don't necessarily sure. know that they're going to they're gonna move on from Sean McDermott. And listen, in-game, what he gets out of rosters usually over the course of his career, he's been in the playoffs three out of four seasons, it's really hard to knock his program and what it does. And it, it reminds you a lot of Andy Reid, right? Like when he was coming up with Philadelphia, how many of those near uh, championship runs ended in dramatic and disappointing fashion? And, you know, that around the league, the reputation was that Andy Reid just couldn't win the big one. And then eventually he, he finds the right role. Now, right. if you're a Bills fan, you're like, all right, well, don't, 
I don't want the, the Eagles portion of McDermott's career to all be in Buffalo before he goes and wins. But you get my point. Like, eventually, I think you go through enough hard times, through enough hard games where you have to react in certain things. And I go back to it, Nate. Like, with the way that 13 seconds went down last year, and we've, we've seen a couple articles that popped up over the course of the offseason, people talking about who was at fault and, and all that kind of stuff. To see the last month in that building – already the buy-in into the McBean way of like team building and the excitement to go back to Rochester and how much these guys, you know, love playing together. And the, the consistent, you know, narrative has been they love playing for McDermott. And so I, I anticipate it being kind of more of the same, but yeah, an interesting conversation to have. And we're, you know, we'll, we'll continue to have it year after year. I'm sure if there's another couple of disappointments. All right, Prino, appreciate you, my friend. Uh, Enjoy your weekend, and uh, we'll be chatting soon as we head to training camp. I look forward to seeing you out there at Fisher.